Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face today. And they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. This week is an episode of solutions, people. Uh, I spoke with Henrik Nordberg, who is a theoretical physicist, an engineer, um, and all-round energy expert, about his global climate compensation idea. For the past few years, Henrik has been working on this idea of how do we get the world economy to transition away from fossil fuels using market mechanisms, which will speak to the most, you know, pragmatic business as usual people out there, and also then redistribute money towards the global south or developing nations so that they can also get a chance to develop without depending on the fossil fuel industry in the way that the West did, and therefore engage in climate discussions at conferences like COP with an effective consensus of decarbonizing. Because right now, essentially, what we're seeing is the most vulnerable nations um, are not willing to give up access to fossil fuels because they're very, very worried about their development. Whether or not that intention is entirely true, frankly, that's where they're sticking. So we need to do something about it. Henrik's idea, this global climate compensation, would tax the production of fossil fuels and then redistribute that tax around the world. Simple. It's essentially a carbon tax with redistribution built in, which is such a key part of it. We go through his proposal in detail um, and we debate some of the finer points about, you know, protecting the world's vulnerable or about corrupt governance, etc. You know, how do we ensure that this plan would be uh, effective? And there's something I actually end up saying off camera uh, to Henrik at the end, which is perfection is the enemy of progress. We are getting to a stage now where something has to be done. We're getting to a stage where the public needs to see something being done as well if we're going to continue the momentum of political will. Henrik cannot possibly be the man that, that figures it all out, but he's potentially figured out a really good solution for right now to incentivize decarbonizing the economy and to potentially Trojan horse degrowth through this redistribution mechanism. It's really, really, really exciting. I hope you all enjoy this episode as much as I did. Uh, if you do, please share it. If you love it, support the podcast at planetcritical.com where everyone now has access to the interview transcripts. Becoming a paid subscriber also supports my independent investigations into climate corruption around the world, exposing dangerous industry greenwashing and the world's worst climate fraudsters. If that's important to you, join the Planet Critical community who help make that happen. And to those of you who are already supporting this podcast and my work, Thank you so much. Well, Henrik, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Okay, thanks for having me. Could you give a whistle-stop tour of your career, what you've been working on, uh, before we come to the main topic of today? Uh, yes, of course. So uh, my background is actually in physics. I um, did a PhD in theoretical physics at the uh, Swiss Federal um Institute of Technology, so it's the ETH in Zurich, and um, then I moved to industries. I worked for 10 years in the private sector, um, eight of those years with ABB, which is a big engineering power company. 
which gave me quite an insight into how the en um, energy sector actually works. And now mm -hmm. since uh, 2010 or so, I'm at the engineering school in uh, Switzerland, where I'm responsible for the curriculum in renewable energies and environmental technology. And okay. I started giving just oh, a, I started giving public uh, climate lectures some eight years ago. And, and the reason was really because I didn't really know what to tell my students anymore. Because, yeah. I mean, you, you're, you're standing in front of like young people, early mid-twenties. And these are people who are supposed to have a bright future ahead of them. And I was really uh, questioning whether what I'm telling them, because basically we're teaching the same thing we taught 20 years ago. And mm. is that the relevant information? And then I thought I, I, I have to tell, tell them something about what really matters. So I started giving public lectures and the global climate compensation grew out of that because I realized you can't, I mean, giving a lecture where you tell people that we're all going to die, is not really very helpful. You really have to start mm. with, with some plan or some idea how we could fix this mess. Absolutely. I think especially with the kind of role that um, academics play in society, like being held as the most knowledgeable, if you guys start saying that it's game over and we're all going to die, then it it's uh, quite a disempowering message. Exactly. I mean, you can't do that. I mean, you have a responsibility, but you also have the responsibility of telling the truth. I mean, you can, you can be hopeful, but you should not... Um, you should not uh, try to hide the, the the truth that we are we are in a very difficult situation, and and that is actually my feeling. I mean, the problem I have is, I think we can. I do believe that we can solve the problem if we all get together. It's like all hands on deck, and we all need to pull in one direction. Uh, how to get make that happen? That's a completely different story. Mm. What at what point in your research did you become aware of the the extent of the problem? Well, I mean, it was. I mean, the extent of the problem is, I think, today fairly obvious. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, first you see it with a naked eye, but if you look at the statistics, you look at how the carbon dioxide concentration is actually not only increasing, but it's increasing at an accelerating rate, I mean, it's actually growing faster and faster, then it's clear that at some point, I mean, it doesn't really matter where the limit is, but because as long as it's increasing, we are going to hit any limit. So, and at some point, life will not be possible anymore. Uh, as So, um, I mean, that was fairly obvious, but what I really, what really shocked me was really, was that there were surprisingly few plans out there with, with that were sufficiently ambitious and sufficiently uh, uh, that really targeted the, the, the real problem. And I, I started making this comparison. I think it's actually quite a good comparison. So imagine we are all on board a, a cruise ship which is sinking. So there are like holes in the hull and we are taking in water at an increasing rate. So the scientists are trying to figure out how much water the ship can hold before it sinks. Mm. And the engineers are all working on trying to design pumps that could keep us afloat mm. even while we're taking in water. And the economists are basically trying to keep the casino open. And <laughs> surprisingly, 
nobody is thinking about plugging the holes. Mm. And actually it's even worse because we're actually paying fee people for drilling new holes. Mm. And if you, if you, I mean, this is a very good comparison because carbon, after all, climate change is caused by the fact that we have drilled holes into the crust of the earth and we are taking out coal and methane, coal and gas and oil out of these holes and that ends up in the atmosphere. There's no chance of preventing stopping climate change unless we plug these holes. But th that is simply out of the question. We need to uh, close down all coal mines, gas wells and oil wells in a foreseeable future as quickly as possible. The tricky thing, of and, course, um, if, if I may jump in here, the tricky thing, yeah. of course, is when looking at the, 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 the system's perspective of it, which is, and I think so many scientists are reaching this sort of like glass ceiling of thought, which is, well, okay, we know that we need to shut down the oil and gas industry, but what impact yeah. is that going to have on our food systems or on people's access yeah. to universal basic services on poverty? Exactly. And, and this is what, what at least got me thinking and, and why I, I made this suggestion about uh, global climate compensation because I mean they're very the devil is in the details and mm. if you you can think about what we have been trying so far has been to say let's try to reduce the demand for fossil fuels by making renewable energies available and that hasn't really worked I mean it's not going fast enough we know that but I think there is also a fundamental problem which people do not talk about, and that is that a large part of the world's population lives in energy poverty still. Mm. There is really no upper limit to the amount of energy we can use. I mean, I think the energy market is supply-driven. The more energy we make available, the more energy will be used. And that, of course, mm. has been the problem in the past. Now, yes, we have been building a lot of renewable energies but total energy demand has been increasing faster I find this to be a very interesting part of um, the, the proposal that you've put together yeah. that key detail that no matter how much renewable energy is still being built the, what we're using in fossil fuels is still increasing because um, su supply overall is increasing and I think that, exactly. that that's a key detail that needs to be broadcasted more I think so. That, that is a very important point. So I think that is a fundamental flaw in this thinking. I can, of course, understand why people... I think it's... This approach is, is mainly motivated by the fact that it's very convenient because, I mean, it allows us to stick to the narrative of growth and innovation, etc. We're going mm -hmm. to fix this problem with, through growth and innovation. And it also avoids a direct confrontation with the oil industry. Mm, yeah. Um, so it's in that it would be the easy way out if it worked. The transition. And then on the others, exactly. The, then the other way you could do, you could of course try to reduce demand and that or or supply, and that is of course what some environmental organizations, there's in Germany, this Endigelende, who try to block the coal mines and and you try to block the the 
oil wells and oil transport, etc. And again, that sounds like a very good idea. You, you, you should do that. Uh, however, it's not that smart, actually, because if you reduce supply, what will... I mean, first, it would be very difficult to do that. I, I smell lawsuits. Mm. I mean, these companies mm. will try to defend their right to produce oil and gas and coal. Secondly, if you reduce demand, or su the supply, then, of course, the price will go up. Mm. So that means that the companies that are still in business, they will make a killing. They will earn a lot of money. And secondly, the high prices will, of course, be a real problem, especially for poorer nations. So again, you have a basic fundamental flaw, flaw with this approach. I mean, we can't mm -hmm. simply stop producing oil because we depend on it. I mean, very many people, our food production, our food distribution systems, they depend on it. So therefore, I thought, okay, I, I think we need two things. First, it is much better to, it's much more predictable to say, let's introduce a global carbon tax instead, because if we do so, we, we know what happens. I mean, we, there have been fluctuations in the oil price in the past. Um, we know that if we increase the, the, if oil prices rises by $40 per barrel, that's, that is annoying. But I mean, the world economy doesn't collapse because of that, because that has happened in the past. And if you combine that with a redistribution mechanism, that actually makes sure that the poorer nations are compensated or poorer people, people or vulnerable people, I perhaps should say, then I think that will not be such a big deal. And then we'll have to ramp up this, this uh, tax or price or fee or whatever you want to call it uh, gradually let's, to see what, what happens. Let's clarify then. So this is, this is the Global Climate Compensation Plan. It yeah. is at heart a carbon tax with a yep. built-in redistribution program. Yeah. So the wealthiest pay for um, their use of fossil fuels and their use of putting the planet at risk. And then at the same time, the money that they pay into that fund is distributed towards the world's most vulnerable people, nations, so that they can what, begin yep. their own transition. Yeah. So that, right. that's the core. And, and it's... The, it, Intention was to make it as simple as possible. And, and one key element is, of course, that the carbon tax should be paid directly by the producers of fossil fuel. And I think that okay. is a very important uh, feature for two reasons. First, because there are very few companies that actually are in that business. There are about a couple of hundred companies that actually extract and produce fossil it's fuels nothing. so it be, would be fairly easy to tax these companies mm. and the second point is of course that um, it's much easier to tax production than to tax emissions I mean companies don't want to measure their emissions because they know they're if I measure their emissions they will have to pay for it so I mean it's <laughs> I mean an airline most well I mean it, it is like that most companies try to sort of hide their emissions Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. the carbon that the fossil fuel companies produce, that is, of course, their production. Yeah. And they have to measure their production because that's the stuff they sell. I mean, they're actually in the business of selling carbon. So, I mean, there's no way, <laughs> there's no way around this. 
So mm -hmm. that would make that would make the whole thing very manageable and very easy. I mean, of course, you have to sort of enforce that too. I mean, I, I don't believe that these companies would volunteer to pay this fee, but I mean, it, it's the enforcement problem seems reasonable if you could do it like that. And then the other way is, of course, to. Sorry, Henrik, there's a, yeah. there's a very slight, like one and a half second delay, which is why I don't mean to keep talking over you. Um, there, the thing that I particularly like about production, taxing production rather than emissions as well, is you can't offset production. You can't say, yeah. oh, well, yes, we might produce this, but this other company didn't produce this and whatever, because obviously what we're seeing with the carbon credit market is exactly the offsetting of emissions, which is just the financialization of the, of the crisis and really quite disastrous for any attempts at progress or addressing the, the issue. So I feel like this almost yeah. bypasses that, that potential problem. Yeah, I, I think it does. I mean, this is a significant... Um, it, it will, there's no way around it. And then, of course, it is It is also clever use of the market forces because, mm. um, or the, the way markets work, because we are not telling the, the I mean, the, the fossil fuel companies will probably not pay this out of their own pockets. They will pass the higher cost on to their customers. So at right. the end of the day, it will be the person who burns the carbon, who actually uses the carbon and can't pass it on, um, who actually pays for things. Uh, and that is, of course, very important because I don't know if you know, there's a big discussion about the Chinese, the emissions from China. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, China is emitting a lot of carbon, carbon dioxide, that is, that's given. On the other hand, very much of this is, is caused by their production of mm -hmm. stuff for the industrialized world. And of course, they then argue that why, in a way, why should we pay for that? I mean, it's consumers in the West that should pay for this. If you use this carbon price, what will happen is, of course, the Chinese manufacturer will have to pay more for his fuel, for his energy, and he will pass that cost on to, the, to the, his customers. So at mm -hmm. the end of the day, it will be actually the consumers in the West who pay for the, or the consumers everywhere, who pay for the carbon footprint of a product, regardless of where it was produced, See, which is, this is quite clever. This is something, though, that this was the first thing when I was reading the proposal that I wanted to stick on and discuss, because we're seeing a kind of... Um, um, we're seeing almost like a practice round of that uh, difference in price and how it's affecting people in the West due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So the speculative yeah. market has just gone absolutely out of control. And even in a wealthy nation like the UK, there are people that are um, terrified about the ability or not to heat their homes this winter. Yeah. Um, we're worried about the effect on food systems, on, on production, all this kind of stuff. So even in wealthy nations like uh, the UK, the USA, we do have a class of very vulnerable, poor, precarious people. Um, yeah. Therefore, surely, you know, creating a system whereby it's the end user that pays in the end. I mean, isn't yeah. that just going to hit the most vulnerable first? Um, it definitely would be without this redistribution mechanism. So mm -hmm. um, the point is, of course, that every nation would then get a payout from this fund. And it's, it's a fairly 
so I did this calculation with $100 per ton of carbon dioxide just to get some numbers. And, mm-hmm. and then, of course, the idea was that if you redistribute this, if, uh, give it back on a per capita basis, every human being gets like $450 US dollars per year. Uh, but that's, of course, assuming you distribute it evenly. Mm. That That's a lot of money for poorer nations, for like for countries like Bangladesh or Sudan mm-hmm. or so, that would be an, have an enormous impact. In Great Britain, I don't think, or in the UK, you would probably give that money to to the vulnerable, hopefully. I mean, this is a political decision that the UK government will have to make, of course. Um, I didn't want to get involved there because, I mean, you can't solve all problems. I mean, the point is that every nation gets a significant sum of money from this fund. And if they do not decide to use that money for, for protecting the vulnerable, well, sorry, I can't help. I, I mean, I think... But I, it is an issue. I, of course it is an issue, but this, this, um, this issue gets even wor- worse if you look at the global perspective, of course. Because, I mean, well, I, even the poorest in the UK are, of course, fairly well-to-do compared mm-hmm. to the poorest people in, in like many parts of Africa. Yeah. I, I, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, in, in the West, we're all the 1%. Um, but still, I mean, it's it's a really, really big if, because if if the governments that we have already are not doing what is necessary to be equitable, mm-hmm. to be fair or to be climate conscious, um, yeah. could this not be another model then that would end up being capitalized upon by the wealthy to maintain their own lifestyles whilst the most vulnerable around the world are hit? Because, I mean, even look at other nations like India these or Saudi Arabia or Malaysia where the elite are incredibly wealthy they have such a wealthy elite class and they're not yeah. redistributing anything amongst their own people um so this this is my concern when the if is well it's on governments to do the right thing and i know that obviously you're a physicist you're an engineer it's not your job to solve all of the problems um but yeah. is there another policy that we could impl- like what would we need to implement at the same time as the global cl- climate um Global Climate Compensation Fund to ensure that it was used in the most effective manner? Um, I mean, that is a very re- important and relevant point. I mean, I, 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 I would like to point out, of course, that mm. the good thing about this plan is it, it makes the, the, the amount, your, your, the increased living cost that you have will be, of course, the increase will be proportional to the amount of your carbon footprint. And of course, rich people have a larger carbon footprint. One of the mm. big benefits is that even the, the billionaire at the Bahamas, uh, in the Bahamas, who has like his luxury yacht and his, um, his private jet, there's no way to get around this. That There will be no tax loopholes from this tax. If you, if you use car fossil fuels then you pay regardless of where you live so i think that is actually a good yeah. thing um yeah. the the other thing I, I was i mean again as you said i'm i'm a physicist i didn't want to get too involved in this i i had this feeling that i mean one of the problems in this game is one of the problems is we don't have a world government hmm. and 
it is very difficult. I thought if you want to make this plan palatable to to governments everywhere or to to voters everywhere, if you say, if if you say you give you redistribute the money with with no strings attached, it would be easier than to say we you will get the money back under these and these conditions. I mean, trying mm. to try to get the Republicans in the UK to say that and the United Nations will now decide how, where the money goes. I don't think they would like mm. that. Yeah. I'm not saying that the other approach is going to... There, there will be problems, yes. But, mm. I mean, at, at the end of the day, the only... The only societal... We, we don't have a world government that it is as simple as that. There are functioning governments, government systems, democracies out there. And I think for many of these countries, they would probably use this money in a reasonable manner. Then, then of course, there, there would be problems with, with, with um, some countries. But I, I made this point in, in this... Um, in the paper I wrote that uh, we are not to appealing to their altruism. That's at least a good thing. So mm. you could, of course, say we take some some corrupt country and the government says, okay, now the, the price of fossil fuels will go up. We take all the money and, and build, build swimming pools and, and, and large villas for the elite, etc. <laughs> I mean, that, that could happen. Um, but it would be kind of suicidal because... As the price increases globally, many countries will try to decarbonize. And that means, of course, that the, the revenue, the money that flows into this fund would actually decrease over time. Mm. And being energy efficient or have a low carbon footprint would actually be necessary to be remain competitive. So if I don't use at least part of the money to decarbonize their economy, after a couple of years, they will simply not be competitive anymore. So I think that there is a really a selfish reason. I mean, the hope is that this will create this dynamics that that for for purely selfish reasons, countries would start to decarbonize. But doesn't that assume a certain uh, long-termism in these people's thinking? that currently is unavailable because they're not only committing suicide with their current ways of governance and policy, but they're also committing mass murder. Um, yes, uh, it does. I mean, the, the, the thing is, um, but that I think is also an argument for this plan. I, I don't know. I, I, um, that there is this brilliant book. I think it's, it's really astonishing, The Affluent Society by J.K. Galbraith. And it's really amazing because it, he wrote, he, it was published in 1958. And he writes in this book that, I mean, obviously capitalism is the wrong system for the problems we have today. Which, I mean, many people are saying today, he said it in 1958, which I think mm. is quite impressive. And, and one of the things he talks about is the conventional wisdom. He, he got quite famous for this. So conventional wisdom is the things that everyone, consists of the things that everyone believes believe in even if it's not true so uh, like the, the um, economic growth I mean everyone is supposed to believe that we need economic growth and it has to go on forever of course everyone knows that 
that it cannot go on forever, but that's not acceptable. So he's, he makes this point that the conventional truth consists of what is acceptable to say, not what is not necessarily or what is true. Mm-hmm. And But then he says, and I think that is an important point, he says that the enemy of the conventional wisdom is the march of events. Uh, that mm. things don't change because people suddenly become more clever or more rational or more, more, more altruistic or whatever. It changes because suddenly it is impossible to keep up this conventional wisdom. And I think it's an important point. I made this um, comparison. If you think about the scientific revolution and, and the reformation in the 16th, 17th centuries, which was about breaking the power of a Catholic church. I think one important aspect was, of course, that this coincided with the European expansion when Europe started conquering the world. So Europe needed a way to circumnavigate the the globe and, and, and cross the oceans. And for that, you need navigation. And navigation needs modern astronomy. So it was not possible to keep up the old worldview anymore <laughs> because it was simply not compatible with reality. And this is why I think, I mean, I, I totally agree, agree with all people who say we need a fun, fundamental, we have to rethink our ways completely. I, I'm also convinced that we need degrowth. I'm just skeptical that people, pe- people decide to do that without feeling a real pressure uh, to mm. do so. I mean, it, it and on the other hand, I think people are really good at, people are very adaptable and very good at rationalizing things. So we know that. I mean, we, we, are, we in a way, this is a problem we have because people are getting, in a way, we are getting used to climate change. We're mm. getting, people adapt. People, I mean, you, we used to be able to do that, but now we can't do that anywhere. Okay, so let's do something else instead. And, and we don't really see that this is a fundamental problem. But I think one could turn that to our advantage and say, so if we now suddenly it becomes too expensive to fly because uh, you can't fly on vacation because um, the fuel prices are too high. I don't think most people would go around, like sit around for weeks, bemoaning the fact that they can't afford flying. And most of them would say, okay, so let's do something else instead. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it is about creating a reality where the rational choice will be to stop using fossil fuels. I mean, then that, that's what I hope that this plan could actually achieve. It's so um, interesting how few companies there are that are producing fossil fuels, a couple of hundred in the world. Um, yep. Given, I mean, we, we know and we see that there definitely is a... Uh, a system of uh, elites and a, a system of wealth that pushes levers yeah. around the world and, you know, tend to get their way, the oligarchs. <laughs> um, but that yeah. just seems like a much more manageable kind of vision. Like you print out 300 names of these companies that are essentially putting the entire planet at risk. And whether or not yeah. that, and I think in that respect as well, it's all right to isolate them out with the concept of like, well, you know, they support the food system and da 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 da. Um, it just seems like so much more manageable to think about them and their actions than about climate change as an abstract concept that is going to, you know, set the world on fire in 2030, which I think is what is exciting about this proposal. 
Yes, and I, I, I also think I was inspired by, um, it's a German, I think it's actually historian, philosopher, uh, author Harald Belz, and he made this point that I'm not an, I'm not an expert on activism, but I really have a feeling, a strong feeling that in order for activism to be effective, you need to have a very clearly defined goal mm-hmm. and a clearly defined target or enemy. So you saw that with the climate strikes uh, everywhere. So one of the demands was they wanted like the, the local city or country or whatever to declare a climate emergency. Mm. And now you can say that's like more greenwashing and didn't really help much. Mm. But at least that, that happened because it was a clear demand and it was something that polit- politicians could do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very difficult to go on the streets and... and demand that the politicians solve the climate crisis because it's like it's okay what do we do now so it's that is another aspect i think by with this idea it is first a very small group of companies as you say i mean so the target the enemies is well defined and and Mm. we know where they live and what their names are so we can i mean you can put an enormous pressure on these guys and secondly I think it is a reasonable ask. I actually once met uh, a guy from the management uh, team of Shell for some event. It was many years ago, and I was a bit naive about it. And I asked him what he thought about this idea. And and he said, basically, well, I mean, if, if, if the rules are the same for everyone, I don't see why Shell should have a problem with that. Um, and then, of course, he inst- because at those days I thought there were like the five big oil companies that uh, ruled the world. But he then uh, explained to me that they're actually more than that. And many of these are state-owned and that is a problem. Mm. Uh, yeah. So um, it might not be so easy to, to do it. But I thought it was interesting because it was like not... I mean, it's a demand that I think every corporation would know what to do with. I mean, it, it's not it's not that it would be difficult to implement. I mean, for them it's easy. Right. Then they measure their production anyway. And if they now are forced to pay a fee proportional to their production, I mean, it's easy. I mean, the, for their C, uh, for their finance CFO, I mean, you just have to add that to the cost and then they, they right. have to calculate the new price I have to sell their oil barrels for and then, then they're in business again. I mean, it's nothing they, mm. I mean, they can handle this demand. Of course, um, they're not going to do is, this without pressure, but I mean, it's, it's a clearly, it's a clear, well, well-defined and well-formulated demand and it's clear who has to act and it's clear what they have to do. And I think that is a very important aspect if you want to be successful with activism. Then, of course, you have to build up an enormous pressure on these companies to actually do that. But that, that's another topic. What impact would this plan have on the renewable en- uh, industry? Because if the cost would be offset eventually to the renewable sector, whoever was buying it, because fossil fuels, we need them to cr- to decarbonize the economy. That's sort of the great irony. Yeah. Um, Renewables, the, yes, the price is going down, they are attracting increasing investment, but they are still such such a small part of our world energy infrastructure. Could this have a negative effect potentially on the renewable en- industry? Could this scare people off for whatever no, reason? No, I think it would I think it would definitely have a positive effect. And 
especially the, the important thing and is that um the the price has to be they have to be able to plan for this price increase so what one would have to do is you have to define this price globally and also probably define uh, or fix the rate of increase so you say this is now so this is now the carbon price and this is now going to increase by 20% annually so get used to it uh, then of course people would start planning ahead and I mean when I talk to I talk to a lot of people in the power power industry and, and um, to them it's it's fairly obvious they they you invest in currently in many countries the situation is like this you they have to sort of guess what the future will be so I mean you you invest in a wind turbine so you you have to cap pay some some millions or whatever for for that and then you have to calculate the return on investment and today it's kind of it's not very large the payback time is very long and you have no clue what is going to happen with the energy prices during this time and that makes it an, an, a not a very safe investment i think it if it were clear that carbon fossil fuel prices are going to rise so we can we can it, it's it's a given that the energy price will go up and if we want to build it we should probably build it now because as you say we need fossil fuels to to build these things so let's build them as long as fossil fuels are affordable and then we can cash in later i i'm convinced that this plan would be an enormous boost for the uh, renewable energy sector that's great to hear what um do you th You've mentioned a couple of times we don't have a world government and certainly when thinking about this plan and implementing it and to get the best out of it, it would be wonderful to wield an altruistic and benevolent fist and force uh, all of the countries in the right yeah. world to redistribute wisely and for these companies to pay up. Um, yeah. Do you think that, uh, and I know this isn't your realm, necessarily but do you think that's something that we should be looking at too if we set up a global climate compensation do we also set up an international climate tax body to attempt um to make this plan as effective as it can be yeah i mean there would of course have to be some monitoring and and i, I don't i think the administrative effort would not be very large because it, it really is i mean you have to monitor these couple of hundred companies that produce things and and that mm. can be done um of course I, i i believe that could be a good role for the united nations to do this so i mean it, it, it there is a body that is responsible for this with the united nations um but it's i mean you you do not have to do that much because the rules are quite simple um then how to get the the countries to participate i mean i could imagine that one could of course put up one way of implementing it and and of course this is out of my realm but i i could of course i could imagine like assume the european union say okay this is a good thing so we will say we are will only i mean first we will 
force our oil companies to join. So like Shell and BP, the thing, the, well now BP is not in, in the EU anymore. But anyway, I mean, uh, the, the, the French ones would, would perhaps be forced to participate. <laughs> and then you could say, we are not, we are going only going to buy from oil companies that, that support mm. this plan or are part of this plan. And we are going to pressure. And if they are not part of that plan, then we will simply charge them. They will have to pay an, an import uh, fee, when, or we will sort of tax them at at the at the ports instead when they deliver to us. So I think it mm. could be possible to do it that way, and and trying to then so you basically say uh, we only have we only we we prefer to trade with companies and countries that support this plan, and if they don't, then we we would basically tax them at the border. Mm. Could be one way of doing it. There's quite an interesting split, I think, geopolitically happening right now because um, the global south, I think, generally speaking, would be very much on board with um, yep. having some of the wealth in the world redistributed back to them for very often the plundering of their own resources and the yep. chance to transition or, or decarbonize or just even for some of them get their hands on some more money. Uh, the global yep. north, I think Europe with the kind of progressive image that it's branded itself with since yeah. World War II. Europe probably would be on board. The UK and the USA, I can see them having very big uh, temper tantrums about something like this um, yeah, to protect but, the free market. But, well, I'm, I, I totally agree with you, of course. And, and I, I was actually thinking I, I, whether one should still use these terminology the global south and the global mm. north you should probably talk about the exploited and the exploiteers or something because that, that's Very basically nice. what it is um, and I mean we're, of course the, the, the point is this I think this has been the fundamental problem with all these climate negotiations anyway that I mean we have you have this split you have the countries that have gotten enormously wealthy from the use of fossil fuels in the past and they're still using enormous amounts of it. And if they... I don't see a solution to this problem that allows us to remain up there and, and forces the other poorer countries to remain poor. I mean, th that is the basic problem with the climate negotiations. Yeah. And you have the same problem. I. I some while ago, I actually started reading at looking at the Sustainable Development Goals. And, and you have the same kind of problem there because, I mean, they talk about they, they want to lift everyone out of poverty, etc. And then you realize that goal number one, eight, is growth. They have growth. And why do they need growth? Because if you want to lift people out of poverty, and you don't have growth, that actually means that then the rich country would have to share their wealth. <laughs> and we don't want yeah. to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, the, this, this growth was put in there by necessity. So they basically said, so let's, uh, yeah, we're not going to give away anything, but future growth, could we could allow these countries to have a bigger part of future growth and then everyone is fine. And, and this is the same kind of self-deception we are doing with the climate problem. I mean, if mm. to try to find a solution to the climate crisis 
which doesn't involve um, involve the rich countries, the countries who, are, I mean, definitely have contributed the most to the problem. That doesn't force them to pay the most. I think will be very difficult. I think at some point we have to accept this reality. Definitely. That is, of course, also what was Jason Hickelis talking about the so recent tweet about him. I mean, solving the climate crisis means degrowth for the rich countries. I mean, there's no no question about it. And um, I think we have to be honest about that. Then the question is how to implement it. And, and I'm sure, yeah. I mean, I've given my suggestion. If someone has a better plan, I'm fine with that. Uh, <laughs> Could you lay out, because this is using the market forces in order to yeah. implement climate justice and in order to you know, attack the fossil fuel industry, essentially. Could you lay out a little bit how you would see them, this fund then transition into a global degrowth economy um, after the vast majority were decarbonized and the fund was getting smaller and smaller annually? That's a very good question. I'm, I'm, uh, I think that is also one important point here i'm not i'm not I'm, I'm personally not totally in favor of the term degrowth because mm. why after all we we are better off than our grandparents i mean we live in a society that i mean material i mean i i wouldn't want to live like uh, like my father grew up in, in in a farmhouse that was connected directly to the stable and, and they didn't have running water and they didn't have... I mean, yeah. it, was, yeah. it was a tough life. So there has, of course, been progress. And I think the problem in the past has been that when we look at economic growth, this has consisted of some level, and there's certainly some amount of innovation and clever thinking there that we actually have gotten smarter and we have invented things that are actually better. Then the bulk part has been simply exploitation of natural resources. And we have not managed to separate this, which I think mm. is a big problem. And I think what people have, people are scared with degrowth. Or one, one of the things that scares people with degrowth is that, like, are we not supposed to be innovative anymore? I mean, what if I have a good idea that, that is really good and it doesn't use resources? Wouldn't, shouldn't we allow that idea? And of course, the market economy has worked quite well in the past of sort of promoting and making sure that good ideas have been turned into product. So uh, what would happen with global carbon compensation is, of course, that if you have a business model or you build a product and somewhere in the supply chain, you use a lot of fossil fuels, that means that a large part of the costs, manufacturing costs of this project, product are, will be uh, the, the, the carbon tax, basically. And you will basically, if your product depends on fossil fuels, you will be forced by the system to share the profits with every other human being on, on the planet. That is basically mm. what is happening. So you mm. cannot make a profit. I mean, eventually, you can still use fossil fuels and and i'm sure we will continue to use fossil fuels for certain applications because it is difficult to replace them but it will not be possible to make a profit you cannot make a profit from fossil fuels because if your product depends on it's very reliant on fossil fuels then um, 
you will share the profits with the rest of the world population. And I, most people are probably not willing to do that. So they will stop or try to get out of that. That's my hope, at least. I think uh, that sounds great. <laughs> Um, again, the thing that I'm imagining is like, right, okay, so do we need an international body of something in order to to police all of this, essentially? And that's not a verb that I'm quite comfortable using with the climate crisis either. Yep. Um, yes, but the policing will be limited to policing the, the fossil fuel companies in this case. Hmm. It's so funny when people talk about the... Uh, the, the the market economy even what you're just saying about it driving innovation and everything i think we've gotten to such a grotesque stage of 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 late stage capitalism where like the market economy is hindered by the very essence of hereditary wealth and how much of it like the yeah. market economy would be better and work much more effectively if redistribution were a part of its um its setup totally and i think this is was um Janis Varoufakis is talking a lot about that, that, I mean, the, the important role of the government is really redistribution because there is a basic mm. flaw in capitalism and that is that wealth attracts wealth, money attracts money. So there is sort of a built-in um, instability in the system. Mm. And the, the, one of the prime fun, pr tasks of the government is to redistribute that. But, I mean... This is um, this is also a good point. I have at least come to the conclusion that there's not mar the market economy is not fundamentally flawed, but the condition is, of course, for a working market economy. Then we have to make sure that every human being has enough money to participate in the market economy yeah. and has enough money to buy what is essential. What, what their essential needs cover the essential needs in the market economy if we can provide that and this is why i also think these ideas with universal basic income etc are very very interesting because as long as we prov manage to provide that then i don't see a fundamental problem with the market economy well also all research has shown that wherever they've introduced a ubi universal basic income to uh, experiment with it. It's driven innovation and uh, entrepreneurship as well as quality yeah. of life and access, you know, so it's actually a massive uh, proponent of the market economy. It's just uh, mm -hmm. more fair. Um, and so, you know, yeah. the heavyweight capitalists aren't keen on it. I wonder then if this, so because there would be no strings attached to the Global Climate Compensation Fund with the, the redistribution, some countries then could choose to use that to implement a UBI or invest in healthcare or yeah. invest in renewables. So what I think is interesting as well, very much so about your proposal, is that it allows for a diversification of investment, which we need from a systems perspective to kind of attack like the multiplicity of the climate crisis, because it's not just, you know, carbon, it's also the economic inequality and energy inequity and all those sorts of things. So depending on uh, yeah. a government's national interest, if it has the interest of the best of its people at heart, um, it could redirect that money where it needs rather than being forced to implement it in a, in a certain industry. Yeah, and I, I think this is, of course, um, it seems fairly obvious that if you want to be serious about decarbonization and, and we have to take lots of money out of the fossil fuel sector and, and, and mm. invest it elsewhere, and this is what this plan does. 
And I mean, the funny thing, what really shocked me was that I, I did this calculation for, for um, $100 per ton of carbon dioxide. And you realize, I mean, that that's, turns out that we will then re redistribute 3.6 uh, trillion dollars, which is a significant amount of money. So three $3,600 billion. And if you compare that wow. to the in the climate negotiations, we're talking about this fund, climate fund, 100, 100 billion that the rich countries are supposed to That's provide it. to it for, for. Yep. I mean, they have been discussing it. It, it was first, I think, introduced in Copenhagen in 2009. Then they talked about it. The fund, they discussed the financing of that in 2015. And then now in Glasgow, I think they finally decided that they had the money. So they're there. But if you look at the details, it, it's really, it's, to me, it's sickening because first, it's 100 billion. Now, Russia invades Ukraine and Germany decides just like that to increase their defense bonding, funding by 100 billion. I mean, this is nothing. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it, it, it's far too little. I mean, there's at least one zero missing on that number. It should be like 1,000 billion. <laughs> Secondly, yeah. if you look at how they provide this funding, it is most of the countries do it through loans. So they say, yes, we, we will actually lend you the money, but you have to pay it back somehow. Or many countries, I think even Switzerland did this, I mean, uh, that they basically relabeled their foreign aid budgets. So they took their foreign aid budgets and <laughs> relabeled them to like, so, so they didn't actually have to cash out any extra money. So, so compared to that, this global climate compensation if you implemented that but you would say like it's like 30 30 times more money would flow to the global mm. south i think i think they would be fairly happy with that massively no and even if all of it is not well spent i think it's difficult to make the argument that they will be worse off when they get all this money um okay honestly honestly just with the level of corruption that it does exist in the world, I'm thinking in particular like one of the countries that I do a lot of investigating in. Um, I could see those bastards just pocketing it all and then using it to invest in the, all, the equally destructive industries that they are home to. Um, but yep. they were going to find that money anyway from somewhere on the market economy. So... And also yep. what, you know, what's quite exciting is how this could galvanize populations as well into becoming more politically active. If there's a global climate yep. compensation fund that's available yep. and citizens are, are aware that their government is not redistributing the money that they know is coming into the country, then perhaps yep. that would be an upswing for opposition parties around the world or for leftist uh, parties around the world. It would be a yep. very easy I've... thing to say this is number one on our manifesto. Yeah. And it is actually, um, I think that that is an important difference. I, I think it was Jason Hickel who wrote about this in one of his books about corruption. I mean, it takes two to participate in corruption. I yes. mean, it's easy to talk about these poor yes. nations, they're so corrupt. But the money that is being provided for this to them is, mm -hmm. of course, these are like uh, men in dark suits that bring suitcases full of, of newly printed dollar bills. It's yep. easy to be to corrupt people that way. Of course, this fund, that would be very trans... And, and, and the, the, I think the, the only way to defeat corruption is transparency. Yes. And in this case, it would be very public, very official that on this day, 
the government of country so, uh, so-and-so received this amount of dollars from the United Nations and it was paid onto this account. Yes. And it's, then it becomes a bit more difficult to hide that money again. And as you say, the opposition politicians would then clearly ask what happened to all this money you received. I mean, to me, this is the, the thing that we need to get people, the thing to get people excited in politics again is more international cooperation, whether it's uh, yeah. global or pan-European or whatever. And I think having a singular global policy um, that is, as you say, there's there's no extra accounting on top. It is just laying uh, out the figures that we have more transparently and redirecting some, some money. Uh, we have the infrastructure in place already to do it. I think it could just be exciting enough to get people uh, believing again in, the in, in uh, I don't know, our capacity to change or confront a problem or just in, in politics once more because it's all fine and well for academics to figure out the numbers and solutions and what needs to be done. But yeah. we also need to be creating uh, politicians around the world that are willing to implement them and then also people that are willing to vote those politicians in. Yeah. And, and that is, of course, I think a very interesting point because I claim that this idea is testable because it doesn't involve yeah. much administration, because it's so easy to implement if, if the, the political will is there. I mean, okay, so perhaps $100 per barrel of oil is too much. I mean, so, or $100 per ton of carbon dioxide. Let's, so let's take 20. What is a ton? Could you just, what so it would for, yeah. I mean, ton, it, it's just a metric ton, so it's a thousand kilos of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I, I know it's a metric ton. But like, what, but, is, what does that mean in terms of emissions? That's a good point. I think uh, flying... I think going flying to New York and back from from London, I guess, is two tons or something. Okay, okay. Okay, so that's still pretty cheap, so actually, so $100 per ton. So you would add $200 yeah. to, to fly to... Um, yeah. Or, I mean, it would add like some 40... Um, some perhaps 40 cents or so, 30, 40 cents to, to a liter of, of gas or something. So, I mean, it's not, mm -hmm. yes, it would be significant, but it wouldn't be completely absurd. I mean, you, you, you can yeah. do this calculation. But the point is, so, so like $100 per ton of CO2 would add, um, would add like 40 bucks, I think, to a barrel of oil. Uh, and um, that's significant. If you if you start with twenty, I mean, then then we're down to less than ten dollars per barrel of oil. And if you look at oil mm -hmm. prices over history, they have fluctuated by far more than that. So I mean, no one can complain that this is going to be the end of the world or going to destroy mm -hmm. the economy. So it it's a testable plan. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. and see what happens. Because after all, at the moment we are we are we are conducting like. A, uncontrolled, irreversible experiment with the whole planet. Mm. Uh, that doesn't seem like a very clever idea. Here we have a chance to do like a controlled, um, reversible experiment. If, you, if we see that it doesn't work somehow or that there are some unintended consequences, well, okay, then we, 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 we go back to the old system or we, we scrap the plan. I mean, it is like... It, I, I don't see what we have to lose by introducing this plan, even if we do it at at the low level. Yeah. 
So tell me, have you gone and approached any political groups, parties, figures with this? Has there been any feedback? I am. I have. Um, I'm working on it. I haven't been very successful. I have to admit that. I'm. I would love to have some economists looking into this because I think it's also interesting enough just to to have a look at the, what what would the effect be on on the global economy of such a plan. Um, I've talked to lots of some charities and environmental organizations, etc., and and they have looked into it. So I mean, I don't have too man, many direct contacts with politicians, but typically these NGOs and and uh, environmental organizations have some trying to approach politicians that way. And um, but in a way, I don't think I don't think politicians will do this voluntarily because at least not in the Western world. I mean, mm. and I don't have too much contact in, in the global South, unfortunately, but because the problem is, of course, as you say, I mean, it will hurt the rich countries. I mean, that's the whole point. I mean, the rich guys will have to pay, but they will have to pay up anyway at some point. So, mm. but therefore I, I, I don't expect like politicians in the, rich countries to sort of volunteer to implement this plan without significant pressure from like NGOs and and, and activists, etc. So this is what I think. I think we have to approach the problem from that side. All right. Well, if there's any European Western politicians listening and you think that this is a good plan, please do reach out to Henrik and let's get the ball rolling on this. <laughs> Henrik, where can yeah. people contact you or learn more about this? So I have a, a blog on Substack, which is called uh, so it's called global-climate-compensation.org. So I think it's fairly easy to find, and um, I, I'm trying to publish things about about it there. And of course, I, I lo I'd love love it if people get in touch. Great. And my final question, of course, is who would you like to platform? Yeah, I've been thinking of this. I think. Um, Václav Smil, or uh, however you pr pronounce it, uh, I think would be interesting because he seemed to be a very um, knowledgeable person about like the, the situation we are in. Um, otherwise, I, I was thinking about if you want to get more like a, a societal perspective, people like mm -hmm. Chris Hedges could be interesting, uh, the American journalist who is, I mean, he's an expert on what's wrong with our society, at least. So that could be an interesting <laughs> perspective. He's not a, like a climate expert, <clears throat> but if you want someone to criticize capitalism, he, he would be the go-to guy. <laughs> Excellent. I will reach out to both of them. Henrik, thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure. And thank you for introducing the Global Climate Compensation Fund. Yeah, thanks a lot.